We're in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, which is one, one long book. And uh, it's a season of Lent. <clears throat> and so our teaching team got together and we thought, what, what are we going to do uh, for uh, Lent this year? Lent is a season where we say no to our flesh. We say no to things that uh, we don't need, um, things that command our attention, uh, turn us away from God. They don't necessarily have to be bad things, really, but just things that can turn our attention away from God. Uh, It teaches us to say no to our attitudes and our desires, um, things that um, can sort of undermine the Spirit's work in our lives. And I'm so glad that the church has a season set aside to focus on that. It is tied to um, Jesus' 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, um, and it's a time to live through that with Jesus, and a time to remember his uh, passion and his suffering as we approach uh, Good Friday. Um, This year, um, uh, you know, I want to go back to something Graham said, actually, in the first week he was leading worship, called it a celebration, and I think that um, a time of fasting doesn't necessarily feel like a celebration. But a celebration is where you uh, gather together, you do something different. You kind of take a step away from uh, the ebb and flow of your routines and your, you know, your daily happenings, the, the, the routine that you're, the ruts that we're stuck in, and we step aside and we focus our attention on something. I would call that a celebration. A wedding would be that way. We're going to take time out of a day. We're going to get dressed up. We're going to change the way we dress. We go. In Maine, that means you could dress anyway, really. It doesn't matter. But um, typically, we change the way we dress. Uh, We go to this specific place at a specific time, and we witness uh, a couple taking those vows. That's a celebration. We break up our routine. And it reminded me of a phrase that I heard, and I I read, really, years ago uh, by uh, John Levinson, who is a Jewish scholar, um, and the phrase says, uh, the phrase goes like this, chaos is neutralized in the cult. Chaos is neutralized in the cult. When I say cult, I don't mean a cult. I don't mean some dark secret society um, that, you know what I'm saying. Uh, A cult, cult in a, like a scholarly sense, when scholars use it, it refers to the outward expression of, Uh, of religion, okay? So when we talk about uh, the Israelite cult in the Old Testament, we would think about the temple and the robes and the sacrifices. That's what scholars are referring to when they talk about cult, C-U-L-T, not the occult. Uh, Those dark meetings somewhere that we don't know really what happens, okay? So chaos is neutralized in that, that religious activity. And so with Lent, it is a celebration, and I'm so glad that uh, Graham mentioned that the first week, because we uh, step aside, we, we do something different for a full 40 days, and we break that routine. And the chaos and the ebb and flow of things that normally happen, um, they get set aside for a moment. And we focus on giving up. We focus on Jesus and what he suffered. We focus on his temptation. And we do that with him and we do that together. And in doing that, in practicing that, those forces of chaos in our life that we kind of that creep in and we just kind of forget that are there, 
they begin to be neutralized. And that's why we do things like that. That's why we have a church calendar. That's why we have these sort of celebrations. And so Lent is important. And even though we're halfway through it, if it's not too late. It's not too late. You could fast for a day, and it could be very effective and powerful uh, for our spirit. And so if you haven't given it much thought, I want to still encourage you uh, to do that. And when we uh, talked about this as a, as a teaching team, uh, talking about Nehemiah and Ezra during this time, we wanted to put a little bit of a spin on this idea of Lent, and that it's not just withholding, but it's building. It's moving forward in some capacity, which is what's happening in this book. There's three great projects that happen. One is rebuilding the temple, uh, rebuilding the liturgy uh, of Israel, and rebuilding the walls. Um, We've been focusing on the wall part with Nehemiah, um, but it's all about rebuilding and return. And I think that sometimes when we think of return, we think of going back. We think of going back to something so that we can get back to the way things used to be. And that is not the case. That is not what we are after. Um, I hear that a lot these days with the pandemic. I can't wait till we get back. And I think that one of the gongs I've been banging the whole time is that I don't know if, you know, there's some things we don't want to get back to. I understand what people mean by that. We want to be able to gather without masks and um, be able to give each other hugs on the way in and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, get our kids back into school, uh, playing sports and being able to go and see the sports. Those are the things we want to get back to. But we want to be thinking about what do we don't want to get back to. A return to God, which is the Hebrew word for repentance, or repentance is the Hebrew word for returning to God. Um, it's not a going back to the way things used to be. And I think the classic example we can think of, um, and God forbid I mention this during Lent, but is the resurrection of Jesus. That when he is resurrected and death is defeated, the big news, the big celebration is not that we go back to the way things were, but that now we can move forward. He's resurrected on the first day of the week, which is a new beginning. It's a new beginning of a week, Sunday morning. You ever see calendars that... that Start on Monday. I hate that. It really bugs me because Sunday is the first day of the week. This is the first. We start our week with worship. And during Lent, we start our week with worship and remembering Jesus' suffering. And so this is about rebuilding. So return does not mean back to normal. It does not mean back to normal at all. And we're going to see that play itself out here in this text And we're at a turning point. We have skipped six chapters. Uh, A a week ago, Lisa was like, how are you going to get through this book? Like, we only got four weeks left, and there's 13 chapters. And I said, well, two things. Number one is that this is a a book that's about return from exile. And a lot of those books have uh, long genealogies. um, And uh, particularly in this book, you know, this person worked on the gems, and this person worked on the rocks, and this person worked on the... There's lots of lists that we can skip over. They are very important, don't get me wrong. Um, but they're not necessarily advancing the plot uh, very quickly anyway. And so there's sections we can skip over. But more importantly, uh, this morning, we skip to... We move beyond the rebuilding of the wall, and we get to this point where... 
the community now can return. This return has happened, and, the, and it's a turning point in the whole book. And when I say whole book, I mean Ezra and Nehemiah, not just Nehemiah. Part one has been Ezra to this point. That whole section has been part one. And they all focus on these projects and these great returns. The return of Zerubbabel, the return of Ezra, the return of Nehemiah, and the projects that they oversee, and the opposition that they overcome. So now is a turning point in the book, which is why we left it to uh, this point. And so we are in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, and we have this great assembly here. So we're going to launch in. A lot of these uh, passages have been like, uh, you know, you don't have to spend a ton of time picking them apart in a sermon. They're pretty simple. But the truths are powerful. So in Nehemiah 8, there's uh, three movements to this. There's the assembly, the gathering of the people. There's the reading of God's story and, and the law. And then there's a response. And in this next section, that happens three times, this whole order of things. Um, we see, there's also going to be lots of names. I'm just telling you now, I'm going to skip those, okay? Um, <clears throat> I, I don't quite understand them all. I can't pronounce them. So, 8-1, Nehemiah 8-1. All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. This is probably referring to uh, those earlier books in our uh, Hebrew Bible, um, probably at the most the first five or maybe less, uh, but Genesis, Exodus, maybe Numbers, Leviticus. <clears throat> so on October 8th, Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law before the assembly which included the men and the women and all the children old enough to understand. So all the kids who are able to listen through this are there as well. Families, community, everyone. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon. Early morning, that reminds us of today, right? Came a little earlier today. Early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. There's only a couple things I want to highlight in this first section. This is about the assembly. And first of all, we, have, we begin to see this theme of all the people. That phrase is repeated ten times in these twelve verses. Ten times. So the author is trying to make a point that everyone, this is our community gathering, everyone is involved. And what's interesting also is that it's sort of put in a passive way. The people gathered together. They are not summoned. This is not the leaders calling people forward. The people are initiating this reading of God's story. They are the ones responsible for the actions. In the next section, you're going to see that uh, they put, they build a platform so everyone can see Ezra as he's reading. And it's still in this vague, the, the grammar is really vague, and it's very, uh, it's, it's clear that it's not Ezra imposing the law on the people. That they want to hear. They want to set him up. They 
take the initiative to build this platform. They call the assembly. They are doing it themselves. So as I mentioned, this section and then the next section and then the next section after that all have this same pattern. Assembly, reading, implementation. And so the focus of this section of the book is the response. How are the people going to respond to this story? Which is very important for us because it's not just about return and going back to something. We are moving forward. How are we going to respond to the story of God and God's story with us? And so the first section is that simple. It's just that what we see is that the people are initiating this sort of movement. It's not being imposed upon them. We go on. It says, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood seven people, (laughs) and to his left there were six others. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of, here's the term, all the people. When he saw them, he opened the book, and all the people rose to their feet. And then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen. 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 Truly, truly. As they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, another bunch of people, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what had been read, what was being read, helping the people to understand the passage. So here's a simple reading. This is probably the longest section in this section. Um, And in it, the the point that I want to direct our attention to is pretty simple. Um, There's a reading of the Torah a reading of God's story, a reading of the law, and the people respond by bowing low. This, it, and I've said this before, that the point is not the walls. That's partly the point. That's a practical point. But it's about this cohesion of the people. It's about defining who we are. And the walls don't really do it. Here's the turning point. What does it is God does it. God's story does it. God is what... God in his gracious act towards us, his love for us, is what defines our community. We read that. That's what Paul, I mean, it's not put very differently, but that's what Paul is doing in the beginning of Ephesians. He's trying to bring definition to this community of non-Jewish believers. And part of what he's saying is that we have been united. We sit together. Where this started in Jerusalem with a handful of Jewish people around this Jewish king that is now extended beyond the borders of Israel. And you also have been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. You are a part of this grand story as well. And so the definition has to do with the story of God, not the walls, 
Not even the temple, but the story. I went to a uh, church, a big church, one time. And I heard this incredible sermon. The speaker was just fantastic. Uh, much more gifted than myself in public speaking. And it was about this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we are kind of, we're getting close to that. Wait, it's next week. Is that next week? Two weeks, I don't know. Palm Sunday. And the speaker's talking about this strange thing that Jesus does with the fig tree. He cursed the fig tree. Right? And then he goes on to talk about moving mountains and all this. And the sermon, the whole series was about you know crazy things that Jesus says. And it talked about, it kind of talked about how this is kind of a crazy thing he did with a fig tree, and he moves on and talks about moving mountains. And the point of the sermon was, you know, people who follow Jesus see things that other people don't see. And do things that other people don't do. And say things that other people don't say. And I had this aha moment. The light bulb went on. Because I was sitting there thinking, there's a reason why he cursed the tree. We can't just say, oh, that was kind of nuts. <laughs> Move beyond it. There's a story there. And I had this moment where I realized this sermon is pulling out principles that you could go to a leadership conference and get the same thing. Leaders say things that other, leader, that other people don't do. Leaders see things that other people don't see. And that's great. There's great principles there you can pull out and learn from. But there was a story, and I thought, this is powerful. If you miss this part, it's a really important part of the story. <laughs> Jesus is doing a prophetic act. He's walking into Jerusalem. He's, he's rejected. He walks out and curses the tree. It's a prophetic act, and he's saying that Jerusalem has not, been, has not received her king, and there's consequences for that. And then he dies, and that's part of it. That's part of the rejection. That's part of the story. And we've got to be able to see ourselves as part of this story and come to it and let the story define us as a people. <clears throat> what's interesting also here is you have the presence of Ezra and Nehemiah up front and several other people. And you don't, Ezra's leading, but the Levites are also explaining, and Nehemiah is there too once the walls are done. And there is a sense that there is no focus on a single person. That this thing that's happening is so much bigger. It's not just Ezra. It's not just about the temple. It's not just about the Israelite cult, so, so to speak, or the outward expression of their, their faith. It's about civil as well. We think of Nehemiah building the wall. Ezra there, who builds the temple. All these other people, the Levites are there, are to explain it. This is a community project, and it's not focused on any one thing. It is, involves all of our lives being renewed. And so the return, again, is not back to normal. It's moving forward. It's trying to take the people forward into something new and fresh, yet at the same time connect them to this story. And I think we begin to see why that story is so important as we read about their reaction. 
Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So we hear this sort of second hand. The people are just, you know, they're tearing their, their robes like we read about and ashes. And they're, they're weeping and they're mourning over this story. And Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods, sweet drinks. Share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day. This is a holy day before our God. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites, too, quieted the people, telling them, Hush, don't weep. This day is sacred. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's words and understood them. So here we have uh, all these people involved saying, Don't cry about this. Don't mourn. Don't weep. And so they're hearing the story. And here's what they're hearing. Genesis, we disobeyed God and were kicked out of the garden. Abraham wasn't always faithful. Did things that, you know, probably shouldn't be be done. Suffering in Egypt grumbling once they're delivered out and God is leading them, grumbling about the leadership, taking all this incredible land flowing with milk and honey and not really valuing it. There's injustice. There's idolatry. And because of that, we are sitting in exile. And we read this story and we're sad. And I think what they're saying is, no, no, no. That's, here's the story. God gave you a paradise. God loves you and created you in his image. Abraham was faithful. And when Israel was suffering, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And he rose up a leader and led you out. And while you had no provisions in the wilderness, God took care of you for 40 years. Gave you a land flowing with milk and honey. God gives. God gives. God loves you. That's where the story starts. That's the story. And it's so important for us to hear this because you have all had that story as well. For some reason, you know, I I don't know what it is, but I don't know why this is. But I've heard this over and over and over, and I I caught the bug, the virus as well, the pandemic as well, that the story somehow begins with the fact that I'm a sinner, and it ends that I somehow dodged eternal suffering. That's not the beginning of the story. The story does not start in Genesis 3. The story starts in Genesis 1, and God's love for us and gift to us and ends with the renewal of creation the restoration of all things all things made new 
gift and gift and love and faithfulness all the way through. And they're saying, and so this is important because we're not going to move forward. We're going to go back if we just see the negative part of the story. And at this part, at the first reading, they're saying this is a celebration. We have returned to a God who loves us so much, has given you so much. This is not a time to mourn. Even during Lent, there's many traditions that say you do not fast on Sunday. Sunday is a day where we celebrate the resurrection. It's the first day of the week. It's a new beginning. It's not a day for mourning. It's not a day for fasting. And the Jewish Sabbath is like that as well on Saturday. It's a celebration of what God has given us. Jesus in the wilderness. We're going to talk about Lent. Let's talk about Jesus in the wilderness. In Matthew, in the book of Matthew. Here's a quiz, Bible quiz time, all right? What happens just before the temptation? Yes, and there's something very important else in there, too. Here is my son, who I love. My beloved son. Jesus goes into the wilderness with this great sense of the love of God. For 40 days, being tempted, and emerges ready to minister. God's love. We always talk about original sin as if that's where the story starts. Original goodness, I think, is one a book I read recently put it. Original goodness, I love that. The joy of the Lord, freshly renewed through the teaching of Ezra and the Levites, will strengthen the people for the soul-searching that lies ahead in the next chapters. The confession and the repentance come later. We begin with joy and a meditation on God's love for us. Our sin and our brokenness is not where the story starts. And so this is the next section. We're not going to pick it apart we're not going to pick it apart because I didn't print it out. But here's what they do next. As they read this, they realize that there's this celebration called Sukkot, the Festival of Booths. And in the Festival of Booths, they create shelters. They remember that time of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They had to pick up and move. And they build these shelters, these lean-tos, and they live in them for a week during the celebration. And the people are all psyched about it. After reading, so here's what's interesting. After reading about God's love, being reminded of God's love, they're ready to worship. They're ready to follow. They're ready to give their time and their energy and their whole week to this celebration. And so it should, you know, clue us off. There's some correlation there. That as we focus on the great love of God, and we are filled with that, We are ready to move forward in repentance and confession, joyfully following God. So, 
I read this article this week that said, you know, uh, preaching is about equipping people. Um, What's the equipping moment here? But there's just one thing. We focus on God's love. The story of God is a story of love for us. For God, so one of the readings this week, one of the readings in the, in the liturgy this week was Ephesians 2. The other one is John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And if we are not filled with the understanding of that, then we will have a hard time. We're going to end up going back. <laughs> We're going to try to recreate something that was comfortable, that seemed good. But rebuilding is moving forward. It's a new creation moving forward. The Israel here will not look like the Israel under Solomon or David. It'll be different as they move forward as a community. So we're going to sing, continue to sing about God's grace and God's goodness. I am going to read a portion of the final, uh, or not the final, but another another portion of of the liturgy for this week. We can get Chris and Lori up here. Since we're reading a passage about God, uh, about the people reading God's word, I wanted to put lots of reading in here. So Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others he has redeemed you from your enemies. For he has gathered the exiles from many lands, from the east and the west and the north, 